Please take your Bibles. God's holy, perfect, and so very powerful words. And turn in them, if you would, to John chapter 17. I appreciate Chad preaching last week from Psalm 1. And a renewing reprieve for me from the load of preaching that is both a joy and a load. Now, on many church calendars, this is a Sunday when all kinds of things start up, which is true for us. And often a new study begins of some sort. Um, and that's our intention. But next Sunday, before we start that, I want to take one Sunday to think through our body, particularly as new people join it and as we kind of reform around the area of unity or being one. And the longer, more detailed title, The Supernatural Unity of Believers Created Through Obedience to Specific Commands of God About How Our Brothers and Sisters Are to Relate to Each Other. So that's our launching point in just a moment. And I would just say, as our church continues to grow in numbers, we face an increasing challenge for obedience to this, or for living in full enjoyment of what Jesus is praying about in the garden here. So we will either, over the coming months and years, talk about the way it used to be here, or we will recognize that it's not getting easier, but harder to be one. It just is by sheer numbers. And we will work even harder to align ourselves with God's purposes. Now, when I do messages like this, people have been offended. I push a little hard sometimes for what they feel. So I'm not intentionally offending you, but I am perhaps calling some of you to think in pretty significantly different ways about the church and what it means to be a part of First Street Bible Church and to be willing to make perhaps some significant life changes in order to live in accordance with that. The heart of Jesus in the prayer just hours before he went to the cross is remarkable in all kinds of ways. But one of the remarkable themes within that powerful prayer is when he, starting in what we know as verse 11, first references it as he's praying. After praying about the Father and his relationship, he then broadens it and says, keep them, and the them there is referring to not only the 12 disciples or those who followed him during his earthly ministry, but all, you'll see, all who follow him. And his prayer is that by keeping them, God would do so by making them one, even as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. And over, and then down in verse 20, if you're looking at your Bibles, you then will see him three more times pray this. Each time, there's an opening thought, and then the request or the reason that they may all be one. 
And by the time he gets to the third one there and the fourth one overall, his prayer is that they may become, and this is striking, perfectly one. That's the end game. That's heaven. That's where we're headed in our relationships with each other. But on the way there, the heart and prayer of Jesus is that we would be one. So maybe a short way to think of this prayer is that Jesus was dying not only to save individual sinners, but far more to make us all one and enjoy that oneness of relationship the way the Father and the Son do. So the New Testament could be filled with the word unity or oneness. And it has many, many references. But one of the ways that we can perhaps think of this is to note all of the, what we call the one another or the each other commands or phrases, or I might just say the thread that's woven all throughout the books of the New Testament, the epistles and the letters of how God wants believers to relate to each other in one another. And just that one another idea gives the idea of reciprocal action. So it's not just me toward you, but me toward you and you toward me and toward each other. It's a back and forth relationship, a give and take, we might say, a network of reciprocating actions that are reverberating throughout an entire body. And each of those is one thread of this whole weaving of God to make a body of believers one. Now, God uses a lot of word pictures to help us picture this unity. He describes us, the church, a local expression of the church, as a human body, with each of us being a body part within that. And in Corinthians, he even gets so specific as describing them as eyes and ears and feet and hands. And he uses, in 1 Peter, the imagery of us being a temple and each believer being a living stone, and all of the stones are being put together on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and being built into a temple for praise to God. Or he speaks of it as a flock. And so Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And Psalm 100, we are the sheep of his pasture. And lots of imagery that goes with that. But perhaps the one most helpful for us as we think about the one another is the imagery or metaphor of family. How God takes all kinds of what we might say orphans, and Aaron Wheeler actually uses that language, when an orphan, when a non-believer is born again, saved, transformed by God, he is brought or she is brought into the family of God, and that's expressed in a local gathering or body of believers. And within that body, then, there are people who function like fathers, spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and spiritual brothers and sisters and maybe even grandparents. Those aren't language that the scriptures use for the most part, but brother, sister, very much so. 
aunts, uncles, cousins, and Wheeler is just portraying that's the picture when a family adopts a child that is happening even as we're bringing new believers and new people into our body. Now, a couple of quick notes. Don't want to overemphasize these one another's. They are certainly not the only commands, not even close. There are all kinds of other commands about how we're to function that don't use the words one another and each other. It's just striking how often God does use that. Also, there are all kinds of commands about how we are to relate to God. There's all kinds of commands about our own personal sanctification that doesn't have to do with anybody else in relationships. But God speaks often. So they're not the only commands, but there's many of them, and they are very instructive. In fact, I counted close to 50 when all was said and done and the dust settled. Now, we could just list those, and there's kind of an interesting way to just walk from Matthew down through Revelation and note where they all appear. But I think it might be more helpful if I can cluster them a little bit into some common themes that might just give you some framework to think. But I do so very trepidatiously because this is not how God organized it. But if you were here back in April and March, we did this with all the gifts of salvation as well. We're just going to pack this in today. So very quickly, these are not important or maybe not even helpful headings to you. But here's our groupings. One is just how many times God calls us to love each other. And we think in terms of how many times he calls us to love non-believers, how many times he calls us to love enemies, how many times he calls us to love our husbands or our wives. But far and away, the greatest number of the calls to love have to do with the family of God or the church. Secondly, we'll look at some foundational attitudes and actions, what I might call the easier ones, though none are truly easy in our own power. Then we'll note a few where God is just very, very specific to say no two brothers and sisters in Christ should be treating each other in these ways. And then we'll finish looking at some especially hard ones, but they are also especially powerful in uniting a body of believers together as a family. And let me just encourage you as we go through these because in some ways it's very daunting and discouraging. This will feel somewhat Proverbs-like in that way. Um, but note which ones that you can praise God and say he has worked in you and brought about and produced in you, but also consider the ones where you still need his grace to grow, to be transformed, and to change yet. So would you bow with me before we begin to look at these together? Speak, O oh Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Please now cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. These are words of power that can never fail. So please, Lord, let your truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O oh Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We ask in your name. Amen. So far and away, very quickly, uh, it's remarkable, striking, intriguing, convicting how many times God just presses this. Now, the writer of the New Testament that used 
that exhorted us in this way the most was the Apostle John. So we get the first reference to loving one another in John 13 when Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, just given them an illustration of that, and then says, I'm giving you a new commandment, not because it wasn't also in the Old Testament, but he's, uh, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm amping this up. This is a commandment in a, in a powerful new level, and that is that I want you to love one another. And you can see the rest of the explanation. That first reference is a very well-known one. Basically, he says, the thing that will stand out, the way people will really, you will be distinguished from everybody else and they'll note you is how remarkable your love for each other is. So over and over and over and over, God will say this. John 15, twice in that chapter. And then when John gets to writing the letter of 1 John, if you can go to the next slide, you'll see chapter 3, verse 11, verse 23, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 11, 2 John 1, 5, over and over and over and over. John just keeps pressing us to love one another and, and gives us all kinds of reasons why it's so important and gives us some ideas and promptings for how. And then when we get past John, Paul picks up this theme in a number of his letters and those first four verses on the slide are all letters that he wrote to churches that also exhorted them about loving each other and loving one another. And then Peter joins in the course to also add in his letter a couple of references to this as well. We all know, at least intellectually, that everything in the Christian life and everything in the church life revolves around the love of God being lived out and expressed in the people of God. All of the other one another commands we will now race through all fit under this umbrella of love one another. So let's pause there and just urge you to think how well will you love this church family? All of them. No matter how easy or hard that might be. Is loving one another here an important enough value because you see God's love for his children that you will pursue to grow in this grace. Mark Deborah puts it this way, very simply. Do you want to know that your new life is real or do you want to know if you're really born again? Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Try to love them. Don't just do it for three weeks. Don't do it for six months. Do it for years. And you'll find out, and others will too, whether or not you really love God. The truth will show itself. So just if that was our solo litmus test as a church, how are we doing? If that was a solo litmus test for you as an individual believer, are we loving one another to the degree that God has loved us and wants us to love one another? All right, picking up the pace perhaps. Here's some, a cluster of about a half a dozen, a few more, of just what I think are simpler ones or easier ones or foundational ones, basic ones, entry point ones, just ways we should function uh, that maybe aren't as deeper, although they certainly should come from the very depths of our heart. 
welcome one another in Romans 15, 7. Very similarly, one chapter later in 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. And then Peter in, in chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality one another without grumbling. He had to throw that in. In other words, be welcoming, be inviting, be warm. Don't be standoffish. Don't make people look at you and think, oh, they probably don't really want to have a conversation with me. Welcome, bring them in, greet them, kiss each other, hug, do whatever, get in each other's space. Don't be private, don't be standoffish. 1 John 1, 7, I love the connection to the gospel here. Not only when we walk in the light is the blood of Jesus cleansing us, but we're having this sweet, precious fellowship. We share the enjoyment of being forgiven people. Ephesians 4, 2. Nope, I skipped one. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 has two of them. One of those is agree with one another. We'll come back to the other one in the harder ones to obey. This is the New American translates this, be like-minded. In other words, where in your flesh you might be tempted to be perhaps fightish or uh, want to prove yourself right, find all the commonality that you share in Christ and dwell on that. Yes, there are differences, and some of them really bug you. But get past that. Don't dwell on that. Don't make that the leading thing when you think about people. Compliment each other. Don't compete against each other. Moving on, Ephesians 4.2 and Colossians 3.13. Both have a list leading up to the one another here. Humility, gentleness, patience, uh, compassion, kindness, meekness. All of those lead up to bearing with one another. And now the idea, the New American translates this, tolerance. So it's just putting up with all of the oddities, all of the quirks, all of the sin, all of the issues, all of the hard stuff about each other, and just bear with them like people are bearing with you. We always think we're bearing more with other people than they are with us, and it ain't so. Don't let people get to you. Don't feel like you have to fix people. Just bear with each other's oddities and differences. God's using each of us uniquely. Ephesians 4.32, just very generally, be kind to one another. Just carry out the golden rule. Treat people, treat each other the way you want to be treated. Be tender-hearted, soft-hearted toward each other, not hard-hearted. Um, yeah, so often we will treat non-believers for the sake of a testimony of the gospel better than we will treat believers. And I think God's pushing us here. Don't, don't be different in, in, with each other. If anything, be even more kind. Romans 12.10. Did I skip one? 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Seek to do good to each other. Not just think good thoughts about each other or have good feelings or say nice things, but actively practicing good toward one another. Romans 12.10. Outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Yeah, like who can be most humble in a conversation is the idea. Make them think, feel valued, that, they, that you think highly of them, that you give them dignity and respect. In fact, consider that you may be dishonoring your spiritual family when you put your personality preferences and your earthly passions and pursuits and your other priorities over them. And so it comes out in our thoughts something like, 
Oh, I know, I know so-and-so could use some encouragement or time or need, but I don't have time for that. There's too many other things going on in my life. And then Ephesians 5, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord together. What we sing unifies us. We just sang four songs where we all sang the same words. We all expressed the same thoughts to God. We were united and encouraging each other in that. It's songs that soothe, songs that strengthen, songs that refocus, because music is a powerful thing. So, out of these relational qualities, are there some that you need to ask God for grace to grow in and to change? For some of you, you're doing them well. Maybe there's an area or two you could grow. Some of you perhaps need some radical surgery. But let's go after it for the sake of Christ. Third category is just uh, one another's commands in the negative. So things no believers should be doing to each other. And it's just God, God makes them all broad. So Romans 14, 13. Don't sit around passing judgment on one another. Now the context here is of expressing Christian liberties where we're not all going to see the freedoms Christ has given us exactly the same way, but don't be the person who thinks he's got it right or she's got it right and the other ones need to grow up a little bit. Don't look in condemning critical ways thinking that pretty much 99% of the time you're right and the other people are wrong. And don't insist on being right and don't look down on people. Galatians, two of them in Galatians 5, if you bite and devour each other, Watch out that you're not consumed by each other. It's a very graphic animal kingdom predator description of animals who keep themselves alive by destroying the life of other animals. And then just a few verses later, do not become conceited because your pride will do two damaging things. It'll provoke others and it will lead to envy. Provoking is the idea of you're just an irritant. You poke, you prod, you, you push, you're frustrating, uh, you're combative. And envying is you just always think you want what somebody else has or you don't want them to have it because you don't have it. It's this sense of competition and comparison, whether it's money, popularity, position, spiritual gifts, or whatever it might be. Colossians 3.9, we talked about this one in Proverbs. Do not lie to one another. That one of the most divisive things in any relationship is dishonesty. So have none of it, God says. You'll never be a united people if you are willing to lie for the sake of making yourself look better or to get you something you wouldn't get unless you lied. So be consistently committed to full honesty. And then two verses in the, toward the end of James, that are sins of the tongue, something we know the book of James for. And uh, men on Tuesday morning are going to be walking through this, so I think we'll see some dramatic improvement there. Don't speak evil against one another. And don't grumble against one another. Notice the word against in both of those. It's antagonistic. And it's, these things are just so, so divisive. Don't put on the fakey face in front of people. 
and then behind their back speak evil of them and grumble against them. And while I would say as a whole, I don't see a lot of that in, these things in First Street, there's a good likelihood they're happening in smaller ways that haven't turned into catastrophes yet. Or we know that there is always the potential that in a very short amount of time, a church can become split over some sometimes incredibly minor things. So are there any of these prohibitions that God puts on our relationships that you need to repent of and ask God to change in you? And finally, not easing out of, the te- out of these, but working our way even into harder ones, I just group these as what I think are especially hard ones, and these are my opinions, so don't take them beyond that. But I would also say that they are the ones that are especially powerful in uniting the family of God. Ephesians 5.21, and then with different wording, but same concept, 1 Peter 5.5, submitting to one another out of reference to Christ and clothing ourselves with humility toward one another. And the idea in both of those is no matter what position you hold, no matter what prominence, no matter what importance in the church, in society, or wherever else, that you always see that others and their desires and their interests are more significant and more important to be met than your own. That idea of just clothing yourself with humility, that when we're around each other, we must always guard against our pride doing destructive work in our relationships. Jesus in Mark 9.50, very simply but very powerfully, be at peace with one another. That God wants us not only to have peace with God, but to have peace with everyone around us and to be peacemakers. It's one thing to be a peace promoter. It's another to be a peacemaker. And it's often hard work and painful work. But God's call here is do all you can to keep peace, to remain to maintain it, and if it is lost, to actively seek and make the changes and lay down your weapons and apologize and humbly change to make peace that you know honors God. Two passages in Romans in the latter part that talk about the word picture of living in harmony with one another. And then I love that the Romans 15.5 ends with the added picture that Jesus joins into this harmony as well in accord with, in the blending of, with Christ Jesus himself. So this is the bringing together of all kinds of different sounds that when you bring them together and the more of them you bring together and the more they blend and harmonize and work with each other rather than compete against each other, the more beautiful the sound that comes out of that harmonized in spirit and in truth so that we complement each other beautifully rather than conflict or compete. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. And these next three or so have to do with compassion and kindness and sensitivity. Comfort each other. Express that compassion. Don't be indifferent. Don't, have, don't be blind to the fact that there's people in our congregation who have parents who have recently died or perhaps have miscarried or perhaps have griefs and sorrows and pains from what's going on in their life. Don't be indifferent. Don't be ignorant. Don't think uh, that, that just being to, ignorant of those things is bliss and good and fine. Don't keep a safe distance. God is calling us to step in 
And wherever you see pain and sadness and sorrow, comfort. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Have the same care for each other. That's an interesting wording, isn't it? Like, not one of you be more caring than the other. Don't, don't just say, well, the sensitive people will deal with that issue. Have equal care. Have the same level of care. Give and take both ways. Each of you helping each other when you're each going through a painful or difficult thing. Very, very similar with different language, Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens. No, we can't take away people's burdens. We can't fix everybody's problems. But we can walk and by that companionship and by that caring and by that prayer and by that encouragement, help the burden that is so debilitating be more bearable. Sensitive to people's needs and what those burdens are, what's a burden for one person isn't for another person, understanding their circumstances, knowing who else is helping them and how alone they might be, and then figuring out and determining by God's wisdom how you best help. Both Paul in Galatians 5.13 and Peter in 1 Peter 4.10 press the idea of serving one another. And remember that Peter would have seen the picture of Jesus washing his feet. Remember that whole conversation. But now when he's writing the letter decades later, he's calling us like he saw Christ do to him and like you and I see Christ do to us to serve one another by humbling ourselves, seeing ourselves as servant and being the ones who do the serving, not sitting around expecting that more people will serve us. And then about half a dozen or a few more that we might all put in a subcategory of how we give and share the word of God with each other. 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Encourage one another with these words. And the, these words are the promises of Christ's return and our being together with him forever and encourage each other with the truths and the promises of scripture. Twice in 1 Thessalonians 5, or two commands, encourage one another and build one another up. And then Hebrews 10, the well-known passage for church attendance. Let's keep thinking about how to stir each other up to more love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together because that won't accomplish that well. Um, but some are developing that habit, especially after COVID. Don't fall into that pitfall encouraging one another and more and more and more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, as you sense Christ's return is becoming more and more imminent, don't become lax lazy and just sit around and wait for it. Pour yourself even more into encouraging each other with these things. Spur each other on. Add fuel to each other's fire. Sam Alberry, it's almost impossible to overstate the positive impact we can have on others if we come to church looking for ways to be an encouragement. Hebrews 3.13, one of the hardest one another commands because of how often we're supposed to do it, daily. Exhort, so this is a little stronger language. This perhaps has sin connected to it, and so there's correction in exhorting often. Um, you can think of preaching often as exhortation, like unpacking the word in a, in a way that's pushing people on in holiness, challenging them, being very aware, as Hebrews 3.13 says, 
that every one of us is fighting a daily battle against the deceitfulness of sin. And some of us are giving in and some of us are being deceived about some of our sins. And we can't let each other do that. We can't look the other way. We have to step in, exhort, lovingly care for. And here it's not on the slide, but let me interject Proverbs 18.1 again. We looked at this one quite a bit when we did the friendship, the Proverbs on friendship. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire or really only cares about him. Second half of the proverb, he breaks out against all sound judgment. So we need each other. We need to be in each other's business. We need to be not arrogantly holding out, isolated, I'm okay. I'm glad I don't struggle with the things you struggle with. God, I'm thank you like I'm not like other sinners, but stepping in, pressing, knowing we're battling. How appropriate we just read the spiritual armor of God. And the fact is, we all struggle to stand firm as much as we should. And Hebrews 3.13 says, well, then daily let's help each other in that battle so that none of us gives in, none of us gets deceived, none of us becomes hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Romans 15.14, Paul uses the language of be so full of goodness and so filled with God's knowledge that you're able to instruct each other, that you're able to say, in the right way, at the right time, to speak from God's word and in God's wisdom to people in their real life situations. Colossians 3.16, have the word of Christ so richly dwelling in you, just running, that you're teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. Like wisdom just comes out because God's word is coursing through all of your veins and all of your brain. And then, Final category, what I might, or subcategory, what I might call the heaviest or biggest or hardest of all, and yet again, so massively important to being able to fulfill these and have a unified body. Colossians 3.12 and Ephesians 4.32, again, those two letters have lots of parallels, but right after, in Colossians 3, right after bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, Paul always adds that, so you also forgive. Ephesians 4.32, right after tenderhearted, be a forgiving people. Act toward others the way God has acted toward you. Don't act like somebody else's sin against you is a bigger offense than your sin against God. See God's willingness to forgive you. Hallelujah, hallelujah for that forgiveness. And then turn around and grant and give it to others. Um, be empowered by God's forgiveness to be a forgiver. It is one of the foremost ways a church family will be unified. And then James 5.16, two commands here, both of them powerful. Because we have a forgiving culture in our church, confess your sins to each other. Acknowledge them. Own up to them when you mess up. And we're going to. We're going to sin against each other. Be sorry and sorrowful over it. Confess it to God, but then go and confess it to those you have wronged. Seek to make things right. Seek to be reconciled. Seek to restore a relationship so that there is no remaining schism. Much as when you are wounded or gouged significantly and the, the, the wound is so vivid and big at first and you treat it and treat it and treat it until 
there isn't even perhaps a sign of it ever having been there. One of the hardest commands, one of the healthiest things we can do is be confessors, and the response is that we pray for each other. Not what we criticize, not that we gossip. We pray and pray and pray. And then Romans 12, 16, perhaps as just a great summarizing, finalizing way of putting one another's. Paul writes, we're many in one body, but we're individually within that body actually grafted not only into Christ, but into each other in ways that we belong to each other and we're members of Christ together and Christ makes us members of each other together with that. So how in these more challenging, difficult one another's are you doing? Where are you weak? What's something you can walk out today that you will seek day after day after day after day? That's how repentance and transformation happen. It's not just a moment, I'm sorry God, and then back to the way we were. But now change me, God, change my heart. And I just bring you back to John 17 in closing to just remind you again, this is the prayer of Jesus. What he died for, what he longs for, is not only for you to be saved by him from sin and hell, but that you would be one with all other believers and one particular way is within this family of believers known as First Street Bible Church. Three quick takeaways that we don't really have time for. So all I'm gonna do is yell them and be done. One is just to remind you, the gospel, and Chad did this so well in, in Psalm 1 last week too, the gospel is our motivation for obeying the one another's. Okay, it's not just stirring it up and thinking about, oh, I need to do this, but man, is it hard for me to forgive. Everybody else can forgive easier than I can. Like we need to look at the gospel. We need to look at all the gospel tells us about Christ and what he has done and how God treats us. And that's how we then live out these one another's. So just beware of seeing the gospel as, this is not great English, but as being for less than it is. As seeing it as something smaller, as limiting to just your salvation. Because it's not just about saving souls, as beautiful and awesome and phenomenal as that is, but it's also about God's glory in building his church and his family. So we are one. So see a bigger gospel purpose to all of this. And a reminder, none of this is about earning our way and our place into heaven. Christ has done that and we trust entirely in his work. This is about preparing to spend eternity with each other in heaven. May God help us in that. And then third, very quickly, particularly to couples with children in, in terms of this quote, but I'll broaden that. Beware of seeing the fulfilling of the one another's as competition for family time or individual time rather than the enrichment of what you do as a family with and for the sake of God's family. Don't conflict the two and don't make them compete. Well, this is family time, so we don't have church time. Work them. Marshall Siegel, he makes the point that as we, the church is often the casualty as families grow. We find love, we welcome children, we buy homes, we invest in careers, we cultivate all kinds of friendship, we pursue our hobbies, 
but often then the people of God are, we forget our place and our vital role within that. And then he says this that I think is so good. The church is not the enemy of the Christian family. It's its devoted ally and its fullest destiny. Healthy families know how desperately they need the church and they gladly build their lives around her in order to serve, nurture, and love her. They not only hope for family-friendly churches, but they strive to become church-friendly families. And I will say, I think there are many families that are doing this well, the one another's, and investing in the church and the relationships in the church well. In fact, I would say some of you singles, some of you young marrieds without kids, and some of you empty nesters need to pick up the pace. Unity doesn't happen unless everyone buys into it and wants it and pursues it. Makes sense, right? You can't have unity if you've got this cluster of people that just don't want to participate, don't care to be a part about that, just want to dip their toes in and get this out and that's it. So unity is going to happen as we all recognize the value of it, Christ's purpose in dying for it to accomplish it, and then we taking ownership of our own role and our own place within this, and let's all work toward what Jesus prayed about and having that fulfilled more and more in this little corner on 1st and F.